Well, they usually say there's two things you shouldn't bring up in polite company, religion and politics. So you can consider this my apology in advance. Today we're going to talk about both. Today we're going to talk about a Christian view, a biblical view of how to think about the government. Uh, we live in a time of intense political polarization. In this environment, some of us are driven to different extremes. Some of us are driven to become ultra-engaged, following the movements of every news cycle. Some of us, repelled by political language that leverages anger or fear, have just turned the news off. Some people, especially in times of crisis, lean in the direction of saying, let's just go along, take the government at its word. Others move to the other extreme, saying, is there any time I can take the government at its word? What course should we take? Should we be among those who simply comply? Should we disengage? Should we be among those who refuse to comply in anything? I think the important question for us this morning is this. How should we respond as Christians? If we believe that all of life belongs to Christ, if all authority on heaven and on earth belongs to him, then, well, first of all, the government belongs to Jesus. So he gets a say in it. And we belong to Jesus. So he gets to set the terms in terms of how we should engage with the government. And fortunately, God has not been silent on this issue. There's actually quite a lot in Scripture about how the people of God should engage with human governments. There's, an, there's enough. We're not going to get to everything. There's a lot of things we could talk about this morning that we won't. What I want us to do this morning is to get a broad biblical foundation First of all, in, in terms of understanding what the government is, in biblical terms, so that we'd be able to learn three things. First of all, how we ought to honor those governments which are over us. Second of all, how we ought to honor Jesus alone as the king over all kings. And third of all, some ways in which we might positively engage in the political process. All right, that's a lot to get to. And this is a big thing, big topic. So let's pray. Let's go to the Lord for help. Our Father and our God, we acknowledge that the area of human government and the question of politics feels at times like an ever-churning sea in which there are a lot of questions and not nearly enough answers. We know, Lord, we need wisdom in this we know that we are not as wise as we think we are and we are certainly not as wise as we ought to be and so we ask that you'd give us humility as we come to your word this morning that you would teach us lord jesus that you would be glorified in all things in our lives and in particular this morning how we think and how we act with regard to the governing authorities you have put over us we pray these things in jesus name Amen. Our outline this morning is going to be the next section in our church's proposed statement of faith. That's the document we've been moving through over the last couple of months. We're almost done. I think we have two weeks left, and we're going to get back to Genesis, which I'm really excited about. Uh, 
but I think this has been a helpful study and it's clarifying on things. Uh, so you'll find that section inside your bulletin if you want to follow along. It's entitled, Of the Civil Government. And it begins by telling us that government is God's idea. Government is God's idea. The confession says this, we believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society. Divine appointment means that it's God's appointment, that governments are God's idea. Kings and town meetings and constitutions aren't just accidental human inventions. They're outworkings of God's will that it's good to have governing authorities in human societies. The Apostle Paul teaches us this in Romans 13. We read this earlier in the service. Romans 13 and verse 1 tells us this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, listen to this, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Governments are God's idea. Governments that exist have been instituted by him. We can think about this even on an individual basis. Any government that exists has been allowed to exist or raised up to exist in God's sovereign will. This is what scripture teaches us in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. God changes times and seasons. He, listen to this, he removes kings and he sets up kings. On one level, of course, it's true that it's elections and wars and revolutions and coups that remove and set up rulers. But on a higher level, back of and behind those human events, it's God's sovereign hand that is at work. There's a way in which we can say after every election, God's will be done. He removes and he sets up kings. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And God has a reason for this. There's a purpose for these things. What's the purpose? Well, the confession continues. Civil government is of divine appointment for, for what reason? For the interests and good order of human society. This is what Paul teaches us again in Romans 13. Now in verse 4. He says, he tells us that the, the king, the government, is God's servant, listen to this phrase, God's servant for your good. That's God's job description for the government. God's servant for your good. What's the purpose? The good of the society. But if you do wrong, continuing here in Romans 13, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is, here's this phrase again, the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has instituted that in every human society, there be some kind of king, some kind of government who wields the sword. Someone who has to be the one with the tasers, and the radar guns, and the courthouse. Every society has to have some way of restraining or punishing evil for everyone's good. And this is something that goes all the way back to Genesis and Genesis 9, and the Noahic Covenant. We spoke about that when we were in Genesis. Government is God's idea for our good. And so, 
Our first application this morning is going to be this. Honor the king under God. Honor the king under God. Again, this is what Paul teaches us in Romans 13 and verse 5. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection. This is following on this phrase, servant of God. Because the king is a servant of God, therefore, one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are, here's another phrase, ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The confession puts it this way, that magistrates, that's referring to all in positions of authority, are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored, and obeyed. The Christian Living in submission to God is expected to live in submission to God's servant, the magistrate, the king, the government. Even if we dislike those who are in office, we must honor the office. Those who govern, govern as servants of God. And you can keep in mind here, you say, well, maybe that would be true if, if our government was all Christians, right? But who's Paul writing to? He's writing to Christians in Rome, right? He's writing to Christians living in the literal shadow of the Roman emperor and of his empire. He's writing to Christians living in an empire ruled with an iron fist, an empire with no love for Jews or Christians, an empire ruled by an emperor with no fear of God before his eyes. And Paul says, he's God's servant for your good. And Paul commands honor. We should pay our taxes. We should honor our governors, our legislators, our select board, our president. Christians should obey the speed limit. Christians should register their cars. Christians should report all their income. Christians should speak respectfully to the police. As far as we are able, in every way we are able, we are called to be respectful, obedient citizens, honoring those who serve as servants of God. That's our first application. Honor the king under God because the king is a servant of God. We honor the king because he's God's servant and his authority is actually derived from a higher authority. From who? From God. God alone is the king over all kings. In Revelation chapter 19, towards the end of the Apostle John's vision of the kingdom of God and of Christ's work, he catches a vision of Jesus as a rider on a white horse. And as part of his description of Jesus as this glorious warrior, he sees this, that on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some of the great emperors of the ancient empires claimed this name for themselves. They'd say, well, he's a king, but I'm the King of Kings, right? And here the Apostle John says, yeah, there's only one King of Kings, and his name is Jesus. We owe a lesser honor to human kings. 
we owe a greater honor to Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is our second application this morning. Honor God as the King of kings. Honor God as the King of kings. The confession puts it this way. It says that magistrates are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored and obeyed, except, this is an important asterisk, except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and Lord over the kings of the earth. Christians owe their final allegiance only to God. This is why Christians are always a threat to any totalitarian regime. If you're a student of history, you look back at the Chinese Communist Party or the way the Soviets treated Christians in their 20th century cultural cleansing regimes. Christians are a threat. It was true even in the early centuries of the church. The Roman emperors were resistant to the rise of Christianity as soon as it started to spread in earnest. And it wasn't because Christians weren't good citizens. What we have in terms of the early church history seems to indicate that they were good citizens, that they paid their taxes, they didn't revolt, they didn't riot in the streets, they actually took care of many poor and needy that the rest of Roman society had rejected. They were good citizens. But there was one thing that the early Christians would not say that the Romans demanded of them. We've talked about this before. Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. This was the Roman Pledge of Allegiance. In the Roman mind, there was no higher authority than the emperor. He was literally a divine figure, a representative of the gods on earth, a personification of the divine grandeur of Rome. He was Lord, and there was no other. There was no higher authority than Caesar, There was actually a pretty high degree of religious toleration in Rome. You could worship whatever gods you wanted, knock yourself out, go give yourself to any deity at any pagan altar so long as your ultimate fealty was pledged to Caesar. You'd worship whoever you wanted to as long as you're willing to say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. The early church was willing to honor Caesar, willing to pay his taxes, willing to be as conscientious a citizen as they could, but they were not willing to make Caesar ultimate. The central Christian Christian confession was not Kaiser Curios, but Christos Curios. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord over all. As Christians, we understand that Christ has purchased us, body and soul, by his work on the cross. This is what the apostle teaches us in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. He tells us, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We don't belong to ourselves. That's what the Romans understood. They understood that they didn't belong to themselves, they belonged to the emperor. We have a different understanding. We don't belong to ourselves because we belong to God. Our ultimate allegiance as Christians can only ever be to our Lord Jesus Christ, Christos, Kurios. And when the Roman authorities demanded that Christians swear ultimate allegiance to Caesar, they refused. 
risking and in many cases sacrificing their homes, their livelihoods, and even their lives. And it's still true today that Christ is Lord. That he's the only Lord of the conscience. That he's the Lord over the kings of the earth. He is still Lord. He is still the king over all kings. America belongs to Jesus Christ. The president and all federal officials are servants of God, whether they realize it or not. Maine belongs to Jesus Christ, and the governor and our legislators are his servants, whether they realize it or not. Liberty and Montville are sovereign property of the king of all kings, Jesus Christ, and our select boards are his servants, whether they realize it or not. In the first place, this means we are bound under God to honor them. But in the second place, this means that if they command us to act or speak or think in ways contrary to the command and example of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are bound by the highest authority to disobey. Where we can honor those in authority over us, we must, but where we cannot obey the commands of human government, we must obey our Lord Jesus Christ. As you think through the record of scripture and the record of followers of God who've given an example of this kind of disobedience in the face of human governments, Daniel probably springs to mind. Daniel, on a number of occasions in the book of Daniel, but particularly in Daniel 6, probably in the most well-known account of Daniel's life, uh, he was a worshiper of God, a faithful Jew who was living in exile under the Persian king Darius. And Darius demanded by law, at the behest of his counselors, that for a period of 30 days, no one in his kingdom could pray to anyone but himself. He'd set himself up as the, well, very much like the Roman emperor. I am the God king. No one can pray to anyone but me. Right? That was Darius's position. And the penalty for worshiping any god other than the god king Darius was what? To be thrown to the lions. Right? We're, we're familiar with this story. And Daniel, this faithful man in exile, did he stop praying for 30 days? No, he continued to pray, not to Darius, but to the Lord, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the God who had revealed himself who has revealed himself now in these last days in the person of Jesus Christ. And Daniel was thrown to the lions. And we know the rest of the story, right? An angel came to him there. God protected him. And he was delivered. And the king repents. It's, it's quite the story. And it's a story that's repeated in the lives of many Christians even around the world today. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world live in similar situations where the king or the chairman of the party or some part of the government apparatus has set itself up as God and demanded that total allegiance must be given and where Christian faithfulness under this regime is punished even with death. 
I pray that I would have Daniel's faithfulness if I was placed in that kind of situation. I pray that our brothers and sisters around the world would persevere and remain faithful under these Daniel-like trials. It's worth remembering and thanking God that we're not in that place in America. There are no troopers on our porch this morning knocking down the door of our worship space. None of us took extra turns on our way to church this morning to avoid being followed. We weren't afraid when all the cars showed up at the same time. None of us worried that a state trooper might come by and see that there's a gathering. Our government at this point has honored its constitution in protecting the free exercise of worship and praise God. That's a real blessing that we should not take for granted. But just because we haven't been thrown to the lion's den doesn't mean that we shouldn't be on guard for softer exercises of governmental influence over us as Christians. Governments wield a couple of different kinds of power. One kind of governmental power is hard power, and that looks like guns and tanks and helicopters. But governments also wield soft power. Soft power is moral, social, and spiritual influence. Hard power makes Christianity illegal. Soft power makes Christianity unthinkable, embarrassing, and despised. And it's worth being aware in our day that many of the instruments of soft power in our state and national governments are tilted, are leaned against biblical Christianity. And I think the danger at this point that we should be aware of is not so much that we'll be thrown to the lions, not so much that we should be prepared for that at least at this point, I think the danger we should be aware of is that we may give in as the soft power of influence shifts the moral sands beneath our feet. Our great danger right now is not the death of our bodies. It's compromising our consciences to be more comfortable with the new moral regime which has been set up around us, including in the halls of government power. And the question at this point is, I think, how do we grow spines to resist this? The strength, I believe, to resist exercises of soft power is found in understanding that Christ alone is king. That he alone reigns over all kings. Seeing Jesus rightly puts everyone else in perspective. And this is true with regard to every issue, but it's also true with regard to government. Human laws, human governments, all exist under God. No human authority can be elevated to such a height that they can escape the judgment of God. The kingship of Christ frees us to take a step back and evaluate our governments in the light of the will and the word of God. Our federal government may change its policy on what constitutes marriage and lead many astray, and it has, changing the moral fabric of our land. 
but Christ alone has the prerogative to define marriage. Our state may legalize the murder of babies up to the point of childbirth, and it has, normalizing the brutalization of the weakest and most voiceless human beings. But that does not make it any less a silent genocide in the eyes of God. Our laws may permit and even encourage parents and therapists to shepherd children into the surgical theater to mutilate their bodies in ways I dare not describe in this setting, but that does not make it right. A nation which has abandoned God and any kind of absolute morality has no power to say no to such things. It's legal, isn't it? Got a majority vote, isn't it? We're all going along with it. It can't be wrong, right? And this is why even in an era of relatively soft social and governmental pressures, we must hold fast to Christ as King, as the only Lord of our consciences. And to refuse to begin to move down the slippery slope certainly of mouthing lies and also of staying silent in the face of lies if we don't hold fast to Christ as ultimate we will find ourselves falling into all kinds of comfortable apostasy if our goal is to take positions on moral issues according to what is comfortable and acceptable to the institutions of cultural influence, we will not end up as biblical Christians. In some ways, some of us are probably not used to that. Before the last few decades, Christians were much more comfortable in our American culture. But if we're going to remain faithful in this day, we're going to have to learn to rejoice in pushing against the grain of our culture. We will have to kill the idol of comfort and be willing to speak the truth in love even at the cost of our own cultural capital as Christ and the apostles certainly modeled for us. We must honor our rulers as far as we are able, but we must only honor Jesus Christ as the king over all kings and as the Lord of our consciences. Okay, we've got three applications this morning. First, honor the king under God. Second, honor God as the king of kings. Third, rule well. Rule well. So far, we've basically talked as if the authorities mentioned in Romans 13 basically correspond to our elected authorities and that our job is to decide when laws are handed down whether we should obey them or disobey. To honor them when we can and when we must to disobey. But as Americans, we have a complicating factor here. And that's that our form of government is very different than Persia or the Roman Empire. Because we don't have an absolute monarch. We are governed not by a king, but by laws enacted by elected legislatures and enforced by elected executives. And that's true on the state level. It's true on the federal level. It's true on the local level where we're governed by select boards who enforce the will of 
our town meeting. And so the difference here between us and Rome is that we actually have a part to play in governance. We get to vote. We get to decide who makes laws. We get to decide who enforces the laws. Sometimes on ballot questions, we get to say yes or no to laws themselves. And in some ways, it would simplify the whole conversation about Christian engagement in politics if we just had an emperor and all we had to decide was, yes, I can abide by this or no, I must follow Christ here. Instead, everything is complicated because we are all little miniature tiny slice of the pie kings and queens. We actually have to make decisions about whether it's Joe or Donald in the White House. We actually have to make decisions about how much we should fund the fire department. It's not just some emperor responsible to God for our good. Our our presidents and governors are responsible to God as his servants, but as voters, as a kind of citizen king, we're also responsible to God for each other's good, at least as far as we can act. We are all kings and queens. In America, we decided to be a nation without nobility, and in a way, actually, we made everyone noble in granting everyone suffrage. You have inherited a right to a little tiny portion of the rule of this nation, of this state, of this community, which you get to exercise at the ballot box and at the town meeting. So when you go, or when you don't go, recognize this. As a Christian citizen, in a very small sense, you are a king or queen, and you will answer to God in terms of how you exercise your authority. You will answer to God for the little slice of power you've been given, right? Romans 13, verse 4, he is God's servant for your good, speaking of authorities, and we actually share in that. So when we go to the ballot box, when we go to town meeting, our frame of reference should be this. What is God's will for the good of this town, of my neighbors? How can I use my little minuscule influence for the good of this state, the good of this nation at the ballot box? It's an incredible privilege we have as Americans that we should take it seriously. It's worth acknowledging as we come to close here that Christians are allowed to have political differences We will almost certainly always on this side of Christ's return have differences with regard to how a nation should conduct itself under God. That's okay. We shouldn't divide over those things as a church. But what we must maintain is the ability to speak prophetically to our government, to our culture, from a Christian point of view. We are, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, ambassadors of Christ. And one of our responsibilities is to be constantly calling individuals, families, communities, and indeed nations to bow the knee to Jesus, to repent and to believe the gospel, and to learn to obey all that Christ has has commanded us. And so I would encourage all of us to step back and think and ask ourselves, what voices influence my politics? What voices influence what I believe is best for our people? 
Am I shaped more by a given party's platform than by scripture? Am I shaped more by talking heads on TV or by a charismatic political leader than I am by God's perfect law and his perfect word? Am I shaped more on moral questions by the opinions of my neighbor or by the opinions of Jesus, who is my good and perfect king? I don't expect that our church will reach unity of mind on the question of politics. It's not something I really bring up that much. My guess is there will always be disagreement on certain issues. But my prayer for us is that as we study God's word together, as we sit under the lordship of Christ, soaking in his words, soaking in his law, which is life, that our minds and hearts and lives and even politics would be conformed in the first place to the word and will of almighty God as he has spoken, who alone is the Lord of conscience and the Lord over the kings of the earth. Amen? Amen. Our unifying principle at liberty is not political in the human sense. We are not united by membership in a political party or any kind of American political persuasion. We are, though, in an ultimate sense, in an eternal sense, united by a political principle. We are a polis, which means city, a people united not under any nation of the earth but under the lordship of Jesus Christ and here among us even today the city of God the kingdom of God is evident it's here and it's coming and after Christ comes after he makes all things new we will live with him and with one another in a new city in a new polis in the new Jerusalem, in the eternal kingdom of God, where there will be no elections and no pundits and no political parties because there will be one king and his name is Jesus and he will have no term limit. And we here this morning are united primarily under the flag of that city. And we are made members of that city of this new people, not by descent, not by blood, not by any human power, but because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We have been brought near by faith in Jesus Christ. We who believe have been reconciled by God, to God, by Christ's death, our sins nailed to his cross. Our lives have been raised with Christ in his resurrection, and that's what we're going to pro proclaim together as we come to the table this morning. The reason we're united around this table is, is the political principle that we have all bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and we belong to his city, to the kingdom of God. That we together claim Jesus Christ, who died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, who was buried, who was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, who reigns in heaven as King and Lord ever interceding for those who are his. Let's take a moment of prayer before we come to the table. Our Father and our God, 
We ask for wisdom. We crave wisdom to live as Christian citizens in this day. We ask that you'd give us clarity, that you'd convict us for the ways in which we are rebels in ways we ought not to be, that we would submit to the rulers you have placed over us. We ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which we may have capitulated even to the soft power of a government which has set itself in many ways against God and against your word. Lord, that you would give us strength to stand as citizens of your kingdom. We ask, Lord, that you teach us to engage rightly in the political situation, especially understanding that we have been given a right as citizens to a say. I pray, Lord, that you'd enable us to to use that right, Lord, in in a godly way. We would honor you and work for the good of our brothers and sisters and our our neighbors. We ask too, Lord, for your blessing of unity over our congregation, that we would be united not by any human political principle, but by the divine political principle of the kingdom of God. We ask, Lord, that as we come to your table, that you would unite us here under the name of of Jesus Christ in his body and his blood broken and shed for our sake. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.